Hello and welcome to the February 2013 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. I'm Brad Snyder, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. And with me is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest political, excuse me, no, legal and legislative developments. You, you reminded me that it's not just legal. And that it's legislative as well, but not political per se, right? Not political per se. Although you get into the politics a little bit. I occasionally include political stories when it looks like they're going to have a legal impact. Uh All right, so that's the connection. And they do affect the LGBT community generally here and abroad. That's that's the connection. All right, let's start, as we always do, with the lead uh, story in this issue. Uh, And this one is some uh, potentially rather significant news out of the Fourth Circuit. Um, It's the case of Delonta v. Johnson. Uh, and this is a case concerning the Eighth Amendment claims of a transgender inmate who has been denied gender reassignment surgery by the Virginia Department of Corrections. Um, before we get to the ruling in this case, um, which, as I mentioned, presents a potential important advance um, in this respect, um, in, the, in the field of recognizing um, some of the treatments that uh, some of our uh, transgender inmates should potentially be entitled to, um, can you give us a sense of some of the severity of the challenges facing this particular inmate in terms of the condition that she that she has and sort of um, the lengths to which she's been trying to deal with that condition? Well, uh, according to the court's opinion here, uh, the opinion uh, for the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, the inmate was named Michael A. Stokes at birth, was convicted of a bank robbery and sentenced to 73 years in prison. Which, by the way, is 73 years for a bank robbery. I I suspect that there's probably probably weapons there. It's probably not a first offense. Mm -hmm. But there are no more details in the opinion. Uh, and so has been in the Virginia Department of Corrections custody since 1983 and presented as uh, having gender identity disorder, the term which is going to be replaced with some new terminology the next time the American Psychiatric Association publishes its new diagnostic and statistical So we'll manual. continue to refer to it but as for now, GID. Or for now, G- the court refers to it as GID, and we'll do that in talking about the, the decision. Uh which the court says is characterized by a feeling of being trapped in a body of the wrong gender. And uh, if this condition manifests itself strongly enough, the individual is severely affected by it uh, in terms of their ability to function, uh, their ability uh, to resist causing damage and injury to themselves. And and in this case, it's gotten to the point, I believe she's repeatedly tried to castrate herself. Uh, Now, she sought treatment and was denied treatment in the Virginia health care component of the Corrections Department. They uh, did not feel uh, that uh, she was entitled to any treatment, and she filed suit. Uh, The federal district judge agreed with the Corrections Department, and the Fourth Circuit reversed, but this is back uh, in 2003 and said that she's entitled to appropriate treatment. Well, and, and, and this is consistent with decisions by district courts and circuit courts in other parts of the country. Uh, they've come around to the view that gender identity disorder is a serious medical condition. And under the Eighth Amendment, a prison inmate is entitled to adequate medical care for serious medical conditions. Uh, and so when the courts have decided that gender identity disorder is a serious medical condition, the question is, what is adequate care? And for that, the courts look to the medical profession and ask, what is the standard of care that's recognized in the medical profession? And the standard of care, at the very least, is counseling and hormone therapy for individuals uh, who need that to alleviate the dysfunction 
of uh, their mental reaction to their gender identity disorder. So uh, as part of a settlement of that case, uh, the Department of Corrections agreed to give the counseling and the hormone therapy. And the right to dressing room as right, a female. Right and I, I did want to emphasize, you've right. said it when you, you mentioned the word settlement. I mean, yeah. the background for this is that this is a long effort just to get yes. that initial assistance uh, from from the corrections department. took, Definitely. obviously, a lawsuit and then a settlement of a lawsuit right. to get these initial things in place. So then this we fast forward to the more, latest. More recently. More yeah. recently. But this is a long struggle for, oh, the, yeah. for this, this individual. A long struggle. And uh, so... The settlement was put into effect. She has counseling. She has hormone therapy. She's allowed to dress and present and groom the way uh, that uh, is consistent with her gender identity. But she still has this overwhelming urge to uh, remove her genitals uh, to complete the process of, uh, of gender transition to the extent of having attempted to castrate herself. Uh, and... Uh, it seems that this urge becomes stronger after counseling. <laughs> well, you you laugh, but it, it, all kidding aside, the yeah. uh, it's. I think you may be laughing only at the idea that it's become clear that actually the counseling itself seemed to is have exacerbating. Yeah, it's exacerbating, and and one can imagine the reasons why that's so. But um, in in other contexts, perhaps it, it may be a little bit hard to understand. But here, the actual you know whatever was going on in those discussions about her feelings about her identity and so forth made this the, the, this urge even greater. Um, so clearly she needs additional help is, right. is the point. And, and she wrote a letter to the prison officials in 2010, said that things are even worse after her counseling. She really needs sex reassignment uh, surgery. And the chief psychologist responded to the letter by saying, quote, in regards to gender reassignment surgery, I would request that you continue to work with Ms. Lang, that's the therapist, therapist yeah. in individual therapy at this time. She made repeated requests. She said, get a specialist in gender identity disorder to evaluate me and see if I'm an appropriate candidate for the surgery. They refused. So back to court. And the trial judge said the standard under the Eighth Amendment is that prison authorities may not exhibit deliberate indifference to the serious medical condition of an inmate. And so the trial judge said, well, they're not exhibiting deliberate indifference. They're providing counseling and hormone treatment. And, and then, and then the flip side her, of that right. argument was the idea that what she's asking for is somehow a, the, her preferred treatment, which right. she's not consti constitutionally entitled to. She's only entitled to what is medically adequate and medically necessary. Yeah. So the issue is what's adequate here. Mm -hmm. And what's adequate depends on the nature of the condition that the individual has. And uh, so the Fourth Circuit, in reversing the trial judge, says we can't assume that what they settled for back in 2003, 2004 is adequate to the present circumstance that she has never been evaluated uh, by a specialist to determine whether it's appropriate, whether it's the next step is to provide sex reassignment surgery. And the court says she's entitled to that evaluation. And presumably, if a qualified expert evaluates her and says that she needs the surgery, that it's uh, medically necessary treatment for her, she's entitled to it. This is, as far as I can recall, the first time that a federal court of appeals has held that sex reassignment surgery may be required, that is, that a, a state prison system may be required to provide this treatment for an inmate. Uh, we have a decision pending in the First Circuit, the Casellic case from Massachusetts, where the district judge ordered uh, that that case had actually gone to the next step. The medical authorities in the Massachusetts prison system agreed that Michelle Casellic 
should have sex reassignment surgery, but the politicos at the top of the system, the political appointees, the commissioner level, were stonewalling on it. And a federal district judge in Boston ordered it, but the order is on hold while the First Circuit considers the state's appeal. So now the Fourth Circuit has sort of beat them to the punch, in a sense, by saying that if the medical authorities agree, if a, you know, they bring in someone who is an expert in gender identity disorder, who does whatever diagnostic uh, things have to be done to make a determination, if they decide that uh, she needs this, she's entitled to it. Will this be the, the, the local Department of Corrections choice with respect to what kind of expert to bring in? Meaning I, what I'm getting at, is this going to be a result where the sort of uh, – a situation where the result is sort of preordained or will there genuinely be someone who is open to the idea that the result could be that they determine that she is in well, need of the surgery? From, from reading the court's opinion, I suspect that if the Corrections Department tries to pull a fast one like that, they're going to end up right back in court. Mm-hmm. And – I'm not sure uh, how this would work in the Fourth Circuit. Maybe if this has to go back to a federal district judge, it should go to a different federal district judge since this district judge didn't seem to uh, to understand what was going on here. Uh, but it, at any rate, it's a very significant decision. Uh, they cite the U.S. tax court ruling recently that uh, the expenses of sex reassignment surgery are – uh, deductible as medical expenses. The IRS had for many years taken the position that it was cosmetic surgery, not medically necessary. Uh, now the tax court says the preponderance of the evidence shows that that's incorrect, that in fact for people who are diagnosed with a serious GID condition, uh, this may be necessary treatment. And if it's medically necessary treatment, it's tax deductible like any other medically necessary treatment as long as it exceeds the threshold amount for the year. You, in the course of talking about this case, you're obviously talking a lot about the prevailing sort of medical uh, opinion about uh, various things. And I was wondering, I mean, this is a fairly, I think I know the answer to this. I mean, it's, it's sort of an obvious question. It may have an obvious answer, but I think it's worth talking about, which is, how much and, – and we may see parallels here between you know, homosexuality initially being classified as a disorder and, and that change being made. How much do the courts, the courts eventually catch up to sort of prevailing medical opinion about these issues? How much does it matter or do the courts really play the opposite role in sort of pushing perhaps the medical establishment forward? I mean how, how do you view what's going on here with the recognition of uh, – you know, in, in the case of folks who are transgender receiving greater treatment and then in the larger sort of struggle? I think one first has to uh, make headway in the profession because the courts are not going to pose as experts on medicine. You know, they're going to defer to the opinions of experts. So uh, the, the movement for transgender rights had first to convince the medical profession of the necessity for these procedures. And then when you have uh, a spreading consensus in the medical profession, you can present expert testimony to a court, and a court is going to defer to expert medical testimony. So the, the profession will be ahead. Okay. Uh, but, but I think this is potentially a very significant case. It will be interesting to see whether the uh, state of Virginia files a cert petition on this. Uh, the Supreme Court has in the past, I think, only decided one case involving transsexuality, and that was actually an inmate case. Uh, involving an inmate, I think, from Virginia. But it wasn't a treatment case. It was a housing case. Uh, and, and and on that, the, the last question I asked, we've, we've, we've talked about this in the context of other cases. In terms of folks who are not in the penal system, uh, what kind of effect can this kind of decision have? Meaning we still have the case that many, many insurance companies, obviously, and particularly in certain states, are, are not providing treatment. Well, to, this, this is where the Affordable Care Act may come in. Mm-hmm. I think it's very important... Uh, 
that what we need to secure is that part of the minimum standards for coverage for health insurance to comply with the Affordable Care Act, either insurance provided by employers or insurance uh, purchased through uh, the uh, private market, that coverage for sex reassignment surgery should be included as, as medically necessary. It shouldn't be automatically excluded. Now, I think the uh, we don't have final regs yet. You know, the various regulations are coming out on how people are going to comply when this finally goes completely into effect in 2014. Uh, and uh, it looks like there are going to be different levels of plans and coverage that one can buy. And I have a, a suspicion that the most basic, least expensive plan might not cover this unless regulations say that it has to be covered and whether the political will is there. I was going to say whether one has the will for that kind of fight um, yeah. you know, on the political side, whether that's right. going to happen. Um, Considering the retrograde attitudes in Congress on many of these subjects. All know. right. So we, we, we transition from a hopeful to a – Maybe a less than hopeful prediction about how that might go down. Um, We're going to leave it there. We're going to take a short break. When we return, we'll be discussing some uh, U.S. Supreme Court news uh, concerning a challenge to the federal law that conditions AIDS, HIV prevention funding to organizations on those organizations opposing uh, or adopting policies opposing prostitution and sex trafficking. Stay with us. We are back discussing uh, some Supreme Court news uh, that will review the Second Circuit Court of Appeals decision in Alliance for an Open Society International v. U.S. Agency for International Development. And as we indicated uh, in the lead-in, this is a case uh, concerning the conditioning of HIV-AIDS prevention funding on certain NGOs um, opposing prostitution and sex trafficking. And the, the Second Circuit had ruled that the federal government in this case had probably violated the First Amendment rights uh, of some of these plaintiff NGO agencies by conditioning the receipt of such funding on such positions. So before we get into the meat of the case, um, Art, what's the genesis of this law and how unusual, if at all, is it for Congress to go about conditioning funding on sort of adopting or expressing certain types of positions? Well, Congress frequently puts conditions on federal funding. Uh, almost, almost every uh, federal statute that provides funds either to the states or localities or to private organizations uh, specifies how it's supposed to be spent, what it's supposed to be used for. So it's sort of routine to do it. But every now and then, the funding is given in the context of some politically charged issue where members of Congress are concerned that federal funds not be used to support activities that they disapprove of or that they think the government shouldn't be funding. All right. So uh, the issue here is – NGOs working overseas on HIV prevention. Uh, And uh, in many countries, a major part of that is working with prostitutes, getting prostitutes to come in, be tested, have AIDS education, education about barrier contraception, uh, about techniques to get customers to agree to use barrier contraception. In other words, in, in many countries, and I would say probably in the U.S. as well, but that's a different story. It's not part of this case. Uh, in order to do effective HIV prevention work, it's important to uh, work with organizations that are working with prostitutes because that is a significant vector of transmission, especially in Africa and Asia. And I take it Congress might take the position that actually demonizing the industry and leaving them out of this would be a more effective HIV prevention strategy? I don't think Congress is talking about <laughs> effective <laughs> HIV prevention. Well, I want what to get they're to talking that, about is we <laughs> don't want any American taxpayer's money to be used in any way 
that uh, signals acceptance or promotion of prostitution. We think it's a bad idea unless we members of Congress are doing it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, there have been the, some scandals. The congressional along those member lines. exception. Yes. Yeah, yes, no, the former senator exception. also just. Yes. Well, I guess yes. it's not exactly on point. But not exactly. Then, on point. You know, okay. fathering his his child that with a twenty four year old. That isn't prostitution. Well, it's not prostitution, but it's, okay. Let's get. Back I don't to think the they'd point. be happy with congressional funding used for this, such purposes as well either. You know. Yeah, Brad. Let's get back to the point. <laughs> okay, so in this case, Congress said, not only. I mean, the normal way to go about this is to say no money appropriated under this act may be used in any way that right. promotes. Uh, prostitution. Instead, they said that no organization receiving money under the statute, with two notable exceptions, I mean, they, they accepted two international uh, bodies connected with the UN and the World Health Organization, but they said no NGO who's getting money under this uh, program uh, is, is eligible to receive money unless they have adopted a formal policy condemning prostitution, and they undertake no activities that could be seen as inconsistent with that policy. So this is a step beyond, in, in the, the Second Circuit's yes. view, of, of sort of just neutrality or silence right. on this point, but rather actively compelled, adopting... Yeah, compelled exactly. speech. Okay. Compelled speech. So that, that's where the First Amendment comes in. Uh, now, the Supreme Court has held that Congress can put strings on federal money because when the government, federal government is spending money on a program... They have a right to decide what the money is going to be spent on. But there's a line-drawing process here between restricting what you can do with the money and saying what you must say. And uh, the, the case that's sort of the touchstone in, in analyzing this issue is Rust versus Sullivan from 1991, which dealt with a regulation that was first promulgated, I believe, in the Reagan administration. Uh, holding that organizations getting federal money for family planning programs may not use that money uh, for abortions or for counseling on abortions or for making referrals to abortion providers or may not even mention abortion, even though what they're doing frequently is counseling pregnant women who want an abortion. So uh, the issue was whether that violates the First Amendment to put that condition on, and the Supreme Court said no uh, because we're not requiring them to affirmatively state opposition to abortion, we're just requiring them not to mention it. And furthermore, uh, organizations could set up separate affiliated bodies to receive well, that, see, that's private that, donations okay, on abortion. That gets know. a little bit, I mean, the, 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 the suggestion of just setting up a private, another entity yeah. to receive well, the money, that gets a little silly at a this certain is, point, this right? Is the, I mean, this is the touchiness of congressional majorities about federal money being used for purposes that they disapprove of. All right, so... Getting back to this case, uh, the Second Circuit sees a distinction here in this. It was a two-to-one uh, panel decision. They see a distinction between telling people you may not use federal money to do anything involving prostitution and to say if you want federal money, you have to publicly disavow any kind of approval of prostitution or tolerance of it. Uh, they say that's compelling them. To, to speak, and compelled speech brings in very strict scrutiny under the First Amendment, and so uh, the court isn't making the ultimate decision here, the Second Circuit, on the merits. They're saying that there's a First Amendment issue here. The dissenter says, no, there's not. This is like Rust v. Sullivan. This is, you know, the Congress is allowed to put strings on federal money. Uh, there was a petition for on-bank rehearing brought by the government, and the dissenter attracted a few more votes, but not enough to grant on-bank rehearing. And so now the Supreme Court is going to weigh in. 
And and when they do weigh in, this brings us back to to the start of this discussion. Will the merits of 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 the restriction matter at all? I mean, will it be will it matter that if there is indication? I mean, whether it's sort of rhetorical or not, or it's actually legally relevant. I mean, will it matter that perhaps people can make the case that these restrictions that Congress has put in place perhaps would undermine the goal of HIV AIDS prevention? Or is that not an issue at all, the sort of well, the second circuit, the efficacy of this restriction? Yeah, the Second Circuit treated it as an issue, uh, a, a question of whether as a matter of policy it made any sense to do this, whether there was a reasonable justification for, uh, for putting this restriction on or whether it would in fact uh, be counterproductive and it would put uh, the NGOs receiving U.S. federal money out of sync with other national, international organizations who are doing HIV prevention work. Uh, I think that's, those are significant issues. And so the Supreme Court might get into that, but the threshold issue they have to get into is whether there's a First Amendment issue here at all. Uh, if they agree with the dissenter from, uh, that under Russ v. Sullivan there is no First Amendment issue, then that's all irrelevant. Uh, but... Uh, now we have a circuit split. The D.C. Circuit has upheld these regulations in the past. Now the Second Circuit is saying that they present a serious First Amendment question. So the Supreme Court is going to have to resolve that. All right. We'll leave it there. Um, we should warn our listeners that I'm very jazzed up about our next case. Art, do you want to do the lead-in to, 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 to our little segue about it, to fairly present what this case is about as a teaser before we come back? Because I can't do it. You can't do it. No, I mean, I'm, I'm all right. This, this, this. It's uh, a teaser, though. Remember, is, we're coming right. back. It's a California Court of Appeal decision. Okay, there's a kidnapping. Uh, <laughs> we're we're gonna we're gonna maybe dispute whether there's a kidnapping, but it's it's a situation involving the adoption of a child from Russia, a very timely and controversial subject these days. Okay, maybe this uh, is just the exit right. into we're coming back. Yeah, child from Russia and a dispute be, uh, between the lesbian couple about whether the other, the non-adoptive parent, has any rights. Right. And we'll be back to talk about okay, the details. We're going to talk about those right. details. We're back talking about an unpublished case out of California, Beth C. V. Marsha. Um, Marsha B. Marsha B. I forgot the initial. Her for Sorry, Marsha B. Uh, that... Um, Oh, I, I'll, I'll save the editorial comment about what this case is really about. Let me give you the fact pattern. Art started before the break. Um, one member of a same-sex couple adopts a child. The other does not immediately adopt because, one, the country, Russia, from where the child was adopted, does not allow same-sex couples to do so. And, two, because the non-adopting partner had a blemish in her history, specifically a DUI, and the couple worried that it would somehow affect the adoption process. So in this case, Marsha adopts the child, and her partner, Beth, begins the process of eventually legally adopting as well in California. And for whatever reason, the process never gets completed after several delays. But the couple continues to raise the child for a while. Beth is the stay-at-home mom for some time. The child calls her mommy. And by all accounts, they live happily and jointly as the child's parents. Then what happens? Are things turn sour, right? Well, you know. The- no, I'm going to give the rest of the facts. Things turn sour between the two. Initially, they're cooperating with respect to sharing custody of and the child. And in fact, living together. And for in a fact, while. Living, living together. And then after they're sharing custody, um, uh, after they split, Beth actually is the one who has primary custody for 18 months. And Marsha visits from time to time during the holidays for a few weeks. So set the stage. Then in February 2011, what happens? Marsha picks up the child named Ian at Beth's residence. And here's where Art and I disagree about what she does. She does not return him, which I think is kidnapping him. What do you think, Art? Well, she is the child's legal parent. 
now, taking her, taking and, him and, away from and, and the, the other parents. Whether Beth was also a legal parent. Okay, so now, it's and, a gray area whether she's being right, legally kidnapped. At that, he's well, being what, legally what, kidnapped. What we have to do is we have to look at all the facts here. I'm not the, the, those the facts, the facts are the facts are that Marsha was the sole adoptive parent. They lived together. Beth was the stay-at-home mom who took care of, of yes. the child while Marsha was working. Uh, and then for Beth, to, after Beth they split. initiated initiated adoption proceedings, but I th- I have a feeling that uh, the reason the adoption proceedings didn't eventually result in an adoption is because they split before then, and of course Marsha's permission would be necessary and. Uh, it looked, the relationship was splitting up, and okay. So let me be so fair. We'll leave the kidnapping as your side. She doesn't return him. She doesn't return. She the child. seeks then. She seeks a custody order limiting Beth's visitations rights with the child, and in the course of seeking that order, she makes all sorts of wonderful legal arguments. Um, and yeah, I'm going to give you. A, I'm going to ask you, Art, to give us a flavor of all all those legal arguments that she makes. Well, she she made the argument that Beth is not a legal parent. Uh, that Marsha was the sole adoptive parent. Uh, she presumably argued that it was in the best interest of the child to be with its legal parent. Uh, the usual argument in a case like this is that under the Constitution, a legal parent has a right to determine who can associate with their child, and on and on along those lines. Uh, but you can't really win those arguments in California because the California courts have now consistently for uh, at least getting back to 2005, have, have been taking the position that the Uniform Parentage Act should be construed in gender-neutral terms as, as it has been adopted in California. And that means that uh, the, the fact that a partner is same sex or different sex from the legal parent is irrelevant, or the adoptive parent in this case is irrelevant. The issue is whether there is a parental relationship de facto between the other uh, parent, the former partner, and the child. And in this case, it's very clear that from the day they brought Ian home from Russia, Beth was functioning as a parent. And the parental relationship was uh, established very early on. The child regards Beth as his parent, uh, and uh, they lived together for a substantial period of time, uh, with Marsha just visiting occasionally a year and a half. And so the court says, you know, we look at the facts on the ground here in California and we ask, what is the relationship between the child and the parent? And, and you mentioned that this is pretty well established in California. I mean, so. the idea that these attorneys are still making these arguments is kind of bizarre. Well, I, <laughs> you, you choose different adjectives yes. than I do. At what point does a court sanction attorneys for bringing cases that are so obviously, at least in California, I mean, we've seen this fact pattern before. We've yeah. seen how the courts deal with it. We've seen the California Supreme Court deal with yeah, fact well, patterns like this. So, yeah. I, I, you know, I'm reading this case, and obviously, I, you know, I may be amplifying how, you know, a little bit for effect how, how infuriating I found the case, but not much. I mean, I do think, you know, someone just sort of taking the child, you know, whether they're the legal child or not, from someone who has obviously held themselves out to be the child's parent in every way imaginable, even if they haven't formally adopted them. And, and in fact, the child lived with them almost exclusively for 18 months prior. Right. To take the child and then to seek the court order in the context of having possession of the child, so yeah. to speak, is not the best behavior in the world. Yeah, I call it chutzpah. Yeah, chutzpah is a good word. Fine. <laughs> no. Maybe not legally actionable, but yeah. chutzpah. But then they go out and find an attorney who's able to then make arguments that I'm, one might also call chutzpah. chutzpah. And the court does. And, the court yeah. knocks it down. But at what point yeah. does the court say to the bar... Enough. 
Well, at, at, at some point, someone has to get sanctioned to send the message to the bar that uh, in the face of clearly established precedent in the state, you just can't make these arguments anymore. Well, clearly we're not there yet for some reason. Well, I think it's interesting that the, uh, the Court of Appeal did not certify this for publication. It's a non-published decision, uh, presumably because they think this ground has been gone over so many times, hmm. there's no need to publish yet another decision on this. But it's still happening, you know? It's, it's uh, and... Uh, Have we seen other courts outside of California uh, interpret this act uh, in I a contrary way in terms of how they – because we've seen in some oh, suppo- jurisdictions that we might think of as more unfriendly because of their anti-marriage laws and things like that um, also, I believe, interpret the, yeah, the act yeah, in a way I, that affords the greater access well, among the, the – the Uniform Parentage Act itself says that it's supposed to be interpreted in gender neutral mm-hmm. language. So uh, presumably uh, a state legislature in deciding to adopt the Uniform Parentage Act – can make changes, can make amendments, so that sort of defeats the purpose of having a uniform act. Uh, but I, I do recall uh, decisions from other states that are similar to the California decision. I think the New Mexico courts mm-hmm. have taken a similar position uh, that uh, a realistic interpretation uh, would be gender neutral. Now, unfortunately, in New York, uh, we still have the Allison D precedent, and we, we still have problems because we can't get our legislature to uh, amend the domestic relations law to put a gender neutrality thing in there and to deal with the phenomenon of second-parent adoptions and things like that in a statutory way. We, we have court decisions authorizing second-parent adoptions, but if, uh, if same-sex couples don't take those legal steps, we still have the issue of the legal stranger the uh, same-sex partner who is playing a parental role but doesn't have a legal status with respect to the child. We have same-sex marriage available now in New York, so people can take care of it through that. But we still have cases, plenty of cases, where people are living together with children who decide not to get married for whatever reason. And so the marriage, the domestic relations law on marriage isn't available in case there are problems. So the prediction, we will probably see more cases like this. Yeah. We'll, we'll probably see more cases like this because it's human nature for these issues to emerge and because deep emotions are engaged in relationships with children. And then hiring a lawyer to make arguments that have already been made and rejected is the only way to deal with those emotions. It could be. I know. All right, I'm being too harsh. I'm seeing your, the way you're looking at me. Yeah. You're saying, Brad, you're being too harsh. Well, you know, we, we live in a world where truth is frequently stranger than fiction and almost any fact pattern that might occur will occur somewhere. All right, words to live by by Arthur Leonard. Uh, Well said. We're going to take a very short break. We're going to conclude with our Of Note segment where Art will mention something notable or funny or interesting in the world of LGBT legal or legislative news. Stay with us. All right, Art, we're going to conclude the podcast with you and your of note of this February 2013 podcast. What what I think is extraordinarily notable (laughs) uh, is that Paul Clement, the former Solicitor General of the United States, thinks that we are awesome. I love we are political strong. I had no idea you were going to bring him up. This is well, you could go take your time with this. I know you love talking about him, but (laughs) he, you know, he he was hired by Congress to defend the Defense of Marriage Act, and he's having a good time doing that. Well, he filed a brief where he said we shouldn't have heightened scrutiny for sexual orientation claims 
because gay people are politically we are awesome. On we top are of the awesome. World. Yeah. We we can't lose. We win. We we've got marriage in nine states. You know, we're on a roll. We've we're, got openly members, gay members of Congress, and unprecedented numbers. Yes, in the military, state legislatures. We're I serving mean, he, proudly. In this brief, he goes on and on and on about how awesome <laughs> the political power of the gay community is. That we couldn't possibly need the assistance of the Supreme Court to help us out in this case. We could just go to Congress and steamroll the Republicans Clearly. and get Doma repealed. That's happening soon. So, yeah, well, let's hope he's right. <laughs> but We the, win either way if he's but, right. Yeah, right. but on the other hand, it would be so awesome for us to get heightened scrutiny because then we could go after every discriminatory practice in law by government, right? Get him knocked down. I'm going to go with the Arthur Leonard view on what would be more awesome for us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we'll take heightened scrutiny and a little less respect from Paul Clement. How's that? Yeah. Well, maybe he'll come over to our side and let us employ him on a case. Yeah. The well, Court. you know, or or serve on various law faculties across the country. What's well, up he's, with that? he's making too much money with his boutique law firm in Washington. <laughs> so. He seems so, to argue with the Supreme Court every other month. Power to him. So. History will remember him. How they will do so? Uh, how it will do so is uh, anyone's guess yeah. at this point. But um, yeah, who who represented the Board of Education and Brown v. Board? Yeah, he, uh, John W. Davis, yeah, exactly. former From Democratic I presidential I candidate. Know. Yeah. I know. So Clement will be in that Hall of Shame. <laughs> okay, that's all the time we have today. That was a good of note art. I like that. Uh, thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting le-gal.org. That's legal.org. This and future podcasts can be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please give, take a moment to give us lots of stars telling us you like us on those podcasts. Uh, if you don't like us, please don't do anything because we would prefer to have more stars, not zero stars. And you can follow Legal on Twitter at legal.org or find us on Facebook. Thanks again.